As we begin our time in God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for the blessings that we've already enjoyed in worship. And Lord, as we come to this moment where we study from your Word, where we consider the faith that we have and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would work through the words that I preach, that those who uh, have not trusted in Christ as their Lord might do so that those who already are resting in him as their Lord and Savior would be encouraged to continue to walk in faith and newness of life. Father, I pray that you would use me, use your word, that you might build us up and send us out ready to serve you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, but it's going to be a little bit before we get there because... We're going to look at a number of things as a way of introduction, but just to remind you, we've been working through uh, the Apostles' Creed and studying uh, this ancient statement of faith as a, a means of understanding what the basics of Christian doctrine are, what it is that a Christian should believe. And we've been on a section in Jesus and in the Christ and who he is, what his attributes are as the Son of God. And so we saw, uh, we've seen so far that Jesus is the Christ, which is to say that he is the promised Messiah. He is the promised prophet, priest, and king. And we have also seen that he is the only son of God. He is the begotten of the Father. He is not made or created, but he is very God of very God. And so now we're going to come to the third attribute of the Son of God that we find in the Apostles' Creed, and that is that He is our Lord. So as we begin today, as we've done so far uh, throughout this study in the Apostles' Creed, I would like us to recite it together. And if you look on the inside page of your bulletin, you'll find the Apostles' Creed there. Now, if you grew up, as I've, I've stated every time, if you grew up memorizing this and saying this in your own church, you might notice that there are a couple of words that I've changed, and I'll explain that as we get to those clauses. But uh, you may want to pay attention to that as we go through this. So let's recite this together and confess our faith in God, confess our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit through this ancient creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So as we read in that and recited in that Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe in Jesus Christ, uh, His only Son, and our Lord. And today I hope that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord. And I want to spend this morning discussing, explaining what it is that we believe when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord. 
Now, uh, to do that, I want to explain some things that we don't mean, as we've done so far in our study. I usually break this down into what I don't mean and what I do mean when we say a particular clause of the Apostles' Creed. And so today I want to explain what we don't mean when we confess Jesus as Lord and what we do mean. So to start with, I want us to consider three false beliefs about the Lordship of Jesus. Three ways that people profess in some way the Lordship of Jesus, but ways that are wrong, ways that are false. And so to start with, we reject the belief in Guru Jesus. We reject the belief that Jesus was just simply a good teacher, that he had a lot of good things to say, he had good morals, maybe even superior morality. And there are many in this world who prescribe to the teachings of Jesus, at least on a surface level. They like the idea of loving your neighbor. They like the idea of loving your enemy and turning the other cheek. Or certainly they don't mind pointing out to Christians when we don't seem to be doing that. They're happy to point that out. And, you know, when I was at Auburn, and I think I've told this story before, uh, there was a fellow student that I was familiar with who stood out from the crowd because he walked around uh, the campus with no shoes on and with tattered clothes. And at some point, I got the opportunity to ask this guy exactly what his deal was. And he said that he was a Buddhist Christian, that he loved the teachings of Jesus. He liked that Jesus taught against uh, against violence and against, uh, he taught us to love our neighbor and all of that stuff. But he was a Buddhist as far as his beliefs about God. And so he rejected Jesus as the Messiah while accepting Jesus as a good teacher. But it's interesting to say something like that. For those who say that Jesus is a good teacher and I accept his teaching, I just reject him as Lord. C.S. Lewis, the famous English writer, has something to say about that belief. C.S. Lewis said that you cannot say that Jesus is a good teacher and deny him as Lord because Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. You see, Jesus taught that he was the Son of God. So we could say that Jesus was just a lunatic to say that, that he believed himself to be God, just as every psychiatric patient believes themselves to be God at an insane asylum. But if he were a lunatic, we can't say, we would in fact be insane to say that he was a good teacher. Maybe he wasn't a good, uh, maybe he wasn't a lunatic though, but instead he was a liar. Maybe Jesus knew all along that he wasn't the Son of God, but instead he taught that he was. Well, then his teaching wouldn't just be the whimsical uh, cravings or ravings of a crazy man, but they would be morally corrupt. And so we again could not say that Jesus was a good teacher. But yet, if we look at the teachings of Jesus and we find some high moral value in them, if we see that he lived by his own teachings in a way that no other teacher ever has, we see that his teachings came true, like his prediction that he would die and rise again and his prediction that the temple would be destroyed. If we see all of that and we acknowledge that he is a good teacher, then we have to say, That he is no lunatic, 
He is no liar. He must be the Lord. That is the only right answer to the belief that Jesus is a good teacher. So second, we reject a belief in therapist Jesus. Uh, There are many who see Jesus or view Jesus as a useful tool for their own happiness. Now, some say that skeptically. You know, if you tell somebody you're a Christian, they might respond to you, well, if Jesus works for you, then that's good, man. You should follow Jesus. Others, like psychologist Jordan Peterson, see great value in the story of Jesus. They would say that it's good to follow Jesus, even if he's not really the Son of God, because following him makes your life better, and that's good for the world, and it's good for you. Still others would go so far as to admit that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet they really don't worship him or obey him as the Son of God. They hold on to Jesus, not for salvation, but for nostalgia and for the community that the church brings, for how it benefits their career. But Jesus does not exist to make your life better or to give you happiness or to help you rightly order your affairs. Hear me clearly on this. Jesus does not exist for you. Jesus does not exist for you. You exist for him. He is not the pill that you take to make your life better. You are to live as a subject to his lordship because he made you to glorify himself. That is the reason you exist. So we serve Jesus not because he not uh, specifically because he makes our lives better, although that is true that he brings us abundant life. But we serve him because he is worthy because he deserves our worship, and because we are created to do it. Third, we reject the belief in hostage Jesus. Now, I'm proud of that title because I came up with it on my own. So, uh, (laughs) hostage Jesus. Um, There are many who would would hold Jesus hostage rather than to serve him as Lord. They would say that Jesus is the Son of God, They might even claim faith in him, and yet they refuse to serve him because of some hang-up that they have. Some have a doctrinal hang-up. They believe in Christ, and yet they struggle with some of the commands of Scripture, whether it's the command against homosexuality or the restriction of the pastoral role to men or God's apparent cruelty in the Old Testament. And many in this camp in, in recent years have taken to what has become popularly called deconstructing their faith. Which is to say that, they, that because of one of these hang-ups, they begin to find fault with Christianity. And then eventually to fall away from Christianity altogether or to deconstruct their faith in Christ. So instead of trusting Jesus, instead of trusting Him even when things don't make sense... They place their own wisdom and understanding above God's and they turn away from Jesus as Lord of their lives. Others hold Jesus hostage because of some life event that has happened to them or to someone they love. Uh, Many reject Jesus because of a cancer diagnosis or a wayward child or a stream of bad circumstances. They made a negotiation with God. 
You know, God, if you'll do this, then I'll serve you. And then God didn't play their little game. And so rather than trusting in him as the sovereign over this world and resting in his care in their trials, they deny his lordship in, as a reaction against what they think God has done wrong. Still others hang up on the, con- the conduct of the church. I've heard it said many times, numerous times before, I don't go to church because they're a bunch of hypocrites. And I've developed a, a favorite response to that. What I've come to say when somebody tells me I don't go to church because they're a bunch of hypocrites is, well, good, you'll fit in. Some have a beef, some have a beef with a fellow church member or the pastor, and so they stop coming to church and consequently deny the lordship of Jesus. And I'm I'm going to have to temper my response to that because uh, I tend to take this personally, but let me just say for all pastors everywhere that if your faith is dependent on the pastor's behavior or the behavior of other members of a church, and I hate to put it so bluntly, but you don't have faith. If you're dependent on someone else's behavior, whether it be mine or another member of the church or a deacon or whomever, if you're dependent on my ability to perform for you as a Uh, as a caveat to whether you will act in faith and serve the Lord, then you don't have faith. I'm sorry. I've visited so many inactive members who just stopped coming to church because the pastor didn't come to see them at precisely the right time, or a church member didn't bring them food when they were sick, or no one said anything to them when they came to church when, we were, when, when they were going through a hard time. And instead of addressing it with the person who offended them, which is actually what the Bible says you should do, or even finding another church where they can feel more comfortable worshiping. They just stop going to church altogether. And brothers and sisters, I hope you understand that there is no way that I, or any other pastor for that matter, can meet the expectations and felt needs of every member of this church. Even if I were full-time, there are not enough hours in the day to get to every need that every person might have. Not to mention, there is no way for me to know every struggle. And it's disturbing to me that some would deny one of the most basic acts of Christian obedience, which is gathering together as God's people, because of some failing on my part or on some other church member's part, and they put that in front of their obedience to Christ. That is not serving Jesus as Lord. That is not submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. So now that we understand what we don't mean, consider what we do mean from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So from this passage, I want to focus uh, mainly on three things from verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 through 11, we find three attributes of Jesus' lordship. We find his supremacy, we find the subjection of all things, and we find the submission of all people. So first, Jesus Christ is Lord because he is supreme over all things. Now, starting in verse 5, Paul tells the believers in Philippi that they are to have the same attitude as Jesus has. And he goes through this progression, this beautiful progression from Jesus being in the very form of God, Jesus being the very Son of God and having full equality with God. And he gives that up. He makes himself nothing for the sake of his people. And he becomes a servant. Even becoming in the form of man, he comes to serve as a man to men, even to the point of death on a cross. So we go down into the pit from the heights of heaven down to the very point of being crucified on a cross. And then all of a sudden in verse 9, it takes this beautiful turn and it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. So recognize from this passage that there are two reasons that Jesus is worthy of his lordship. He is worthy to serve as Lord of Lords. One is that he is the Son of God, that he is God of God. And so he deserves to be served because he is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And he is worthy of that because of his very position as the Son of God. But he is also worthy of that because he became obedient. Because he served the Father, because he died on the cross, that he might save a people for himself, and because he gave glory to God in all of it. So he is worthy because of his very position as the Son of God, but he is also worthy because of the sacrifice and the obedience that he gave to the Father. And not only has God exalted him, but he has given him a name that is above Every name. Jesus is the supreme Lord of all things. There is not one atom in all creation that exists outside of the will of Jesus Christ. There is not one demon in hell who is outside of his authority. And there is not one king or one president, oh, take comfort in that, who in this world who is not outside of his control and outside of his rule. Second, all things are subjected to the rule of our Lord Jesus. In verse 10, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And notice who will bow. Everyone in heaven and on earth and where else? Under the earth. Every last person who has ever lived, whether they reside in heaven or in hell, will one day bow the knee to our Lord. 
Every demon that has resisted his rule to the very last trumpet will one day bend the knee. Every atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Muslim, and Jew will one day bow in subjection to Jesus Christ. And third, every last soul will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Paul says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that raises an obvious question. Well, now wait a minute. I I know, preacher, that you say that if you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you'll be saved. So does that mean that at the end, when the judgment day comes, that ultimately everyone will be saved? Well, what we have to understand is that there are two types of confession. Actually, there are two different Greek Greek words for confession. The one used in Romans chapter 10 is different from the word that is used here. And in our day, in this age, there is a, a time, an age of redemption, an age of confession. As Paul explains in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, we live in an age of repentance where the gospel is being preached to the ends of the earth and God is calling out His church. Those who by faith confess Jesus as Lord, become members of His kingdom, and wait for that final day of judgment. But when that day of judgment comes, the window of faithful confession will be closed for all of eternity. On that day, everyone will confess. Every last person, every last angel, every last demon will confess. But many will, be, will confess not because they have faith, Not because they believe, but because they are like a conquered nation, knocked to their knees and confess their defeat. My dad has a a way of saying this, and I'll, I'll borrow it. He says that you will either kneel now in faithful obedience to Christ, or you will have your legs knocked out from under you on that last day. And you will kneel in submission because Jesus will make you. He is the Lord. And you will either come in faith and submission to Him now, or you will come in judgment and conquest then. But you will kneel to Jesus as Lord. So the question for you today is simple. Will you confess and kneel in humble obedience before Lord Jesus today? Or will you be made to kneel and confess in humiliation and judgment on that final day? You know, in closing, there's a, there's a beautiful thing about this statement in the Apostles' Creed. And it's one of my favorite things about the statement. It says, notice it says, it, or, or it doesn't say, I should say, it doesn't say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, the Lord. Right? It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The creed recognizes that there is a need for personal confession. It is not enough just to say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the Lord. Yeah, yeah, I I believe that He is the Lord. Like Jacob did when when he was asked, uh, you know, who, who his God was. He said, He is the God of my Father. He didn't say He was His God. He said He was the God of His Father. 
It's not enough to say that he is the Lord. We must confess that he is our Lord. So the question is, is Jesus your Lord today? Do you believe that he has saved your soul? Do you believe that he has redeemed you from hell and judgment? Do you want to serve him as your Lord and your Savior? It is only when you come to recognize him as your Lord, when he rules over your life, that you have salvation in him. So I hope that you trust in Jesus as your Lord today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the beauty of this confession of faith. And Lord, I do pray that everyone here would know you as their Lord and Savior. That they would not simply see him, uh, see Jesus as uh, a therapist that makes their life better. They would not simply see him as a good teacher who has some good things to say about morality. They would not use Jesus as a hostage for their own needs and their own uh, hang-ups about Scripture or the church, but that rather we would all serve Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that we would uh, confess Him not as the Lord, but as our Lord today. Father, bless us now as we respond. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.